Say hello and welcome to Resistance Radio. I am John Kane. I'm your host. Um, look, we are streaming the show on Facebook Live, and uh, we will that video will be available on Facebook if you don't catch us live afterwards. Um, it's actually the first time we've streamed a video in several weeks, and I'm not going to make any apologies, but I was on vacation for, for a couple of weeks, so I put a few shows in the can for, uh, for the radio and for my podcast of this show, uh, but this one we're doing live uh, from WBAI in New York City uh, with a rebroadcast at WPFW in Washington, D.C. So first off, let me welcome uh, the listening audience in both Washington and in New York. And let me remind you that we are listener-supported radio, and we depend strongly, significantly, almost totally, on, uh, on your donations to these radio stations. So if you're listening in New York City, I encourage you to go to the pledge line. Go to 212-209-2950, or go online to give to wbai.org and make a contribution um, of any size. Do what you can, when you can. If you can do a weekly donation, um, become a, a BAI buddy uh, in the name of this show, uh, I would greatly appreciate it. I want to remind people that, that I am a volunteer producer, so any contributions you make to WPFW or WBAI go directly to the station. They don't, they don't support um, or uh, fund you know, any of my content. They just, they just support the radio station. But doing so in the name of this program um, kind of ensures that, uh, that they keep me on. So if you're listening in Washington, D.C. on WPFW, then I hope that you'll go to that pledge line, which is 202-588-9739, or go online to WPFWFM.org. And same thing, make a one-time contribution, make a time contribution, do a weekly contribution, whatever you can do to support these fine radio stations. And if you're listening on an affiliate, um, also... Uh, you know, look, wherever you're getting this content, whether it's on a radio station, whether it's on the podcast, just acknowledge where you get it from. And, uh, uh, and look, I, as I always have to tell people, I am offering a native perspective on issues that oftentimes affect all of us, but certainly many times are just native uh, issues that you may not be aware of. And you may not be aware of the, uh, of the perspective that I'm offering. And that perspective is not one that I'm, I'm not on a, uh, this isn't a missionary here, uh, attempt here. I'm not trying to recruit people. I'm just trying to make people aware that this perspective exists. And whether you uh, can acknowledge it, respect it, or whether you agree with it, I mean, or disagree with it, the, the point is to, to let people know that there is a perspective that you may not have entertained before. And sometimes it's more than a perspective. Oftentimes what I'm trying to offer here is, are facts that you may not have ever been aware of. And I'm going to get into, <laughs> into something today. I, this week, I went out to Avon, New York. I know it's, it's spelled like Avon, but it's Avon, New York, um, which is in the Genesee Valley in you know, more, more central slash western New York. It is actually the, the ancestral homeland of the, the Seneca Nation, the Seneca people. Um, it is an area that the Senecas were driven out through some fraudulent treaties and uh, swindling and any number of uh, means that the state of New York and, uh, and the United States used to dispossess Native people of their, of their lands. Um, it, there's a, it was actually a, a community for, that may have existed for, for as many as uh, you know, several thousand years. Uh, um, Gonawanus is the name of the, the, what is what it was called at some point. Um, 
And the reason I went out there is because there is a proposed and likely approved um, development that runs along um, a major section of this land that was that was ancestral Seneca land, um, a very culturally sensitive area, uh, acknowledged. Um, now it's been it's been farmland, but uh, it is being developed for a major solar energy development. It's called Horseshoe Solar, so you can look it up and find it online. Um, I, I went out to Avon to be a part of um, uh, not only raise a little bit of issue, do a little sign carrying, doing, doing a little, uh, um, you know, raising attention to, to those who would go there, including the media, that Native people did not support this. In spite of the fact that we, we generally uh, support sustainable energy, the idea of doing these massive institutionalized, industrialized sized developments that really are geared more towards the bottom line than they are, you know, even, you know, towards, you know, climate change, uh, you know, um, action or anything else. It, it, these are money-making operations. These are developments. These are financial developments. And so this massive solar project, which is being proposed in this town of, or in the, in the, right off the village of Avon, New York, in the town of Rush, um, is intended to, to cover a bunch of this area. And of course, it's going to involve bulldozing and pile driving and, and any number of things that are going to um, very, be very disruptive. It's going to include fencing, obviously. So it's going to affect migration of animals and that kind of thing. So I went out there to be a part of the public comment um, uh, event, I guess, that took place there. Now. One of the things that I have to say is having a public comment hearing is not a seat at the table. Calling in Native people, whether it's in Washington or into, into Albany or, or, you know, any state capital for, you know, these, uh, these meetings, or which are oftentimes are, are a little more than photo ops, they are not a seat at the table. Lip service. Um, political appointments. Deb Haaland being appointed as the interior secretary is not a native seat at the table. It's their table, it's their seat, and they just happen to pluck somebody who is really, you know, a politician, a democratic politician. She, she ran for Congress, got elected, and of course, when she got, you know, to get elected, it means that white people voted for her. I mean, let, let's be clear. I mean, the native vote didn't put Deb Haaland into Congress, and the native vote didn't put her into um, uh, the, the cabinet position of Secretary of the Interior. So these appointments, or people running for office, that is not native people getting a seat at the table. And, and I think it's really important that we, that we understand that. Now, can we be hopeful that if a native person gets elected to a, you know, a, a state or a, a national office, that they will not forget where they came from. Yes, we can be hopeful, but we also have to acknowledge that when they get into those positions, their constituency is no longer just us, if it's us at all. They are voted in by, you know, by Americans, by, by, and predominantly by white people. And, you know, and regardless of whether they're Republicans, because there are some Republican congressmen that, are, that claim Native ancestry, and there's some, uh, some uh, Democratic, uh, not just congressmen, but uh, you know, appointments in, in various state positions and federal national positions that, that claim Native ancestry. But to get into those positions, it is not Native people that is driving them to, you know, to have that success. 
That's just not the way it works. So, you know, I once heard somebody say, and, and, I, and I almost think it was like Mitch McConnell, he, when he was um, asked about reparations, black, black reparations, he says, what do you mean reparations? You had Barack Obama, that's your reparations. I mean, Barack Obama being in the presidency isn't a black, isn't a black seat at the table either. Because again, it took a lot of white people to get him elected. And if you look at his track record, eh, some of the things were, were, you know, they look good. Some of it looked good, but it, it wasn't, he didn't actually move the needle much for, uh, for civil rights. You know, for, uh, he didn't really advance issues for black people. And, he, and frankly, he didn't advance issues for native people. Uh, he was much harder on immigration than, than people ever anticipated. He was very aggressive when it comes to drone strikes and any number of things that, that many of us would find troubling. So, I mean, and again, I'm not going to you know, spend this hour bashing Barack Obama or, you know, or, or any specific individual. And I'm not bashing Joe Biden for appointing Deb Haaland in the Interior Department. But my point is that, is that these appointments, these elections, these positions in your system that you put perhaps a native person into is not giving us a seat at the table. Because if we aren't representing our interests and our interests almost solely, you know, or, and those interests are not just about us. I mean, they are about environment. They are about, you know, autonomy and distinction. And, and frankly, they are about creation. You know, oftentimes native people, part of what we are advocating, even in this, you know, when we, when we oppose things like this horseshoe solar project, it isn't just about us. It's about, you know, other life. It's, it's about migratory patterns. I mean, look, there used to be a time that moose used to migrate clear across the state. That doesn't happen anymore. Why? Because people are here. But the, you know, the, even the, the smaller game, I mean, not just deer, but, you know, smaller game, uh, or not, I don't even call them game, but smaller animals. You know, they, they are affected by, by fencing off an area. They are certainly affected by putting these major reflective, you know, solar panels in these massive, um, in these massive, especially when those areas have been traditionally just farm fields. You know, so it, it's going to take a while, you know, for animals to adjust to having their habitat screwed up. And, and, it, and it indeed does screw up their habitat. And of course, most of the debate over, over something like this is about man's habitat. You know, there, there's very little concern about, uh, you know, about the rest of creation. But see, that's the difference. We also have a concern about, you know, what we call the seven generations um, um, ideology, which is that we make decisions today with, an, with a, uh, being mindful of how they're going to impact those faces we will never see, those generations that will come after we're gone. And it also, the seven generations is concept is also looking back it, and, it, and it's trying to acknowledge that certain decisions that were made in the past going back seven generations were trying to leave us um, the opportunity to perhaps even right wrongs that that they were forced to have to commit you know because of circumstance like being run out of the Genesee Valley and out of this area where this uh, where this uh, power plant let's call it what it is it's a power plant is uh, is intended to be to be built, but I wanted to talk about that project. But I also wanted again. I wa I wanted to emphasize this idea that there is not a seat at the table. 
You know, because here's the thing. You know, we, we have talked on this show a lot of times about the doctrine of Christian discovery. Now, the doctrine of Christian discovery is, um, is essentially legal dog or religious dogma. It comes out of the Vatican. I mean, it, um, and basically all Christian denominations ultimately, you know, signed up and subscribed to this notion that the Christian nations of Europe had some sort of you know, divine right to claim lands owned by non-Christians, or, you know, by pagans, by, by people that, by not being Christians, were already being designated or delegated or, uh, or characterized as the enemies of Christ. I mean, that's, that's what Native people, were, how we were viewed. We were viewed as enemies simply because we didn't have the same religious or, you know, or philosophical ideologies. And so that religious belief, these Papal bulls, which are which essentially um, establish this this idea of the doctrine of Christian discovery, and it starts in Africa. It doesn't even start, you know, on with Columbus's voyages or, or whatever else. But even though its its foundation and its origins are out of you know you know off the pen of the Pope, these become codified in law, and in. Um, I think it's 1833 uh, in in that area. 1823, um, it becomes codified in because of a of a case called Johnson v. McIntosh, where Justice Chief Justice John Marshall essentially puts the doctrine of Christian discovery into U.S. law. He uses the doctrine of Christian discovery to um, to create for the first time uh, a legal argument. We can debate whether it's moral or ethical or right, but but a legal argument as to how the United States gets to claim title, and you know, and it includes language like, you know, like Native people, their sovereignty was necessarily diminished upon you know discovery. It doesn't say how or why, but he just says it was, and it isn't just in the 1800s. I mean, I've mentioned it several times on the show here that that Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 2005, I mean, again, liberal darling of the Supreme Court cites the doctrine of Christian discovery as footnote number one in a case where she uses this concept to reject um, the, uh, the right of Oneidas to reclaim uh, lost land, even though that reclamation was somewhat supported by a, a U.S. Supreme Court decision that said that the Oneidas really had a, a right to claim that land. And so when they actually purchased it on the open market and then reclaimed it and, and took it off the tax rolls, this becomes an issue because you've got folks like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the rest of the court that say, well, under the doctrine of Christian discovery, uh, that title became vested in the sovereign. We're not talking about native people. We're talking about the Christian nations of Europe, then the states, and then the United States. So if church dogma can be codified into law, what still is, is very troubling for, you know, it should be tr troubling to a lot of people, is the fact that there are certain international laws, declarations, commissions that have been widely supported by the vast and overwhelming majority of, of nation states that the United States still rejects. Now, I've talked a lot about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples here on this program. And I talk about it because it exists. I don't talk about it because I think it's wonderful. I don't talk about it because I think it, it has solved any problems. 
But it actually creates some problems because when the international community makes a declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples, and, and I, know, I know I've talked about the problem with the word indigenous, but, but on the rights of native people, and, and it says in its declaration that this declaration constitutes the minimum standard for the dignity and survival of native people that nation states must acknowledge, but then, but then isn't. And it's not even just not acknowledged. It's, it's like the level of ignorance as to its exist, existence. I went out to this, again, I went out to this hearing, and you know, basically other than the few native people who were there to, you know, to, you know protest, I guess, and, and argue against it, um, I had to, to, to shame all the white folks there. And trust me, it was all white folks there. That they didn't even know that the UN Declaration of uh, on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples existed. They, they were completely oblivious to it. Even the supporters of ours didn't know it. And, and the reason I bring it up is because it gets back to this whole idea of, a, of the seat at the table. Because in the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the most prevailing line in the document is the call for free, prior, and informed consent that is required under this minimum international standard to, to have, been, have got, been gotten from Native people on a, a range of issues that impact Native people, not just what happens on our specific Native territories or what happens to us specifically, but even as we're dealing with with development on, on property that was, that was wrongfully taken from us. So what it says is that in order for, for and it, again, it's mentioned I think five or six times in, the, in the, uh, the UN Declaration, various circumstances, and, and they, they, very, they absolutely overlap, various circumstances where if an action by the nation state, and it always says the state, and it means nation state, not necessarily the state of New York, that if the actions of a state are going to impact Native people, then free, prior, and informed consent is required. Now, the United States doesn't acknowledge that. And, and again, I've said it before. Four countries voted against this thing in 2007. When it, when it passed the General Assembly of the, of the United Nations, four countries voted against it. The United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Now, since then, all four nations have hedge their bets a little bit on this thing. And, and they've, they've come out and they said, well, we support, including Barack Obama. And, and I'll, look, I'm going to tell you, Barack Obama in 2010 began a process of reevaluating the United States' position on the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. And I attended some of those hearings in Washington. And, and I know that as it was being discussed, one of the major concerns was how much this declaration would change international law. And that's why the United States voted against it, because they were concerned about it. The United States was also concerned about this idea that is prevalent in this thing, which, which is the self-determination self for, for Native people, that we get to decide who we are, what we are. And the United States said, no, when we talk about self-determination, the United States throws that term around all the time, too. They throw the word sovereignty around, all kinds of stuff. But when, what they mean is internal self-determination. It means that Yes, we're going to put you in a box, and we're going to let you make certain decisions, you know, and give you certain authority to, to rule in that box. But 
among the things the United States was, was vehemently opposed to was the notion that we would assert sovereignty even over that box. So that's why the United States voted against it. But, but again, so what was the change then? Well, Barack Obama, and, and this also includes Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they all took a similar position, that they endorsed the aspirations of the agreement. So they're saying, yeah, we, we support the aspirations of the agreement, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. I mean, it doesn't mean they, they fully embrace this as law. Canada's tried to hedge that a little bit, but, but the United States... And Canada, both when they when they began this idea of endorsing the aspirations, says we endorse it provided it doesn't conflict with our laws. Well, if your laws don't in include free, prior, and informed consent on policies, practices, and laws that impact us, then you then you are in conflict with this thing. You are violating this this declaration. I brought this up at this meeting in, in Avon, New York. I brought this up because I said none of you even know this exists. And as I sit here today, or stand here today, I should say, and I offer my five-minute comments, you get to check a box and say you did this. Public comment periods are not free prior and informed consent. Public comment periods are not a seat at the table. They are a regulatory hurdle that you need to put in place in your system so you can check the box and say we did it. I mean, you don't have to consider anything that we said. You just have to give us a microphone so we can say it. But to be clear, our comments are not welcome by developers. I mean, they were welcomed by, and there were a lot of non-native people, a lot of white people there who, who are opposed to this project. And frankly, they're hoping that, that you know, because they're, protests, their concerns, their opposition has fallen in deaf ears. They're hoping that somehow we're going to have some stronger um, words or, or more effectiveness. And look, they did change this project a little bit. In fact, one of the, uh, one of the, the women representing the um, company doing this thing, um, I spoke with her. She says, you know, we did do some carve-outs and we, and we left some sections out. I said, yeah, yeah, I know. But that's not the only areas that concern native people, those little, those little carve-outs that you did. And to be clear, one of the biggest concerns that the, that the white folks had there was, wasn't just that this project was big and, and, and it was industri industrial grade and, and all this other stuff. They were concerned about environmental issues, but they're also concerned that what this company was attempting to do was to have the state wipe out and ignore the, the town of Rush laws that, that had already been in place that were based on some of New York State's NYSERDA, New York State, uh, their energy um, department, um, their recommendations. So the town of Russia already has laws, and they said, no, we, we want to have those laws wiped out as it applies to this project. So whatever they agree to, and even if they, they say, look, we're, we're not going to do this, we're not going to do this, we're only going to you know, cover so much land, we're only going to do so many things. If they can get, get the, the, the town of Rush laws eliminated, then they can, they can change that afterwards. <clears throat> so that was a concern of, uh, of, of many of the, the white folks that were there. And they were hoping <clears throat> that, that our words would have impact on this development. And I don't know that they, they will. And you know, part of what 
what my comments were geared toward, I, I wanted to, and again, I know it sounds pitiful in a way, I wanted to shame them. I said, you don't, you don't even know that the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples exists. You don't even know that there's an international standard. And why don't you? Because while your, your laws had no problems incorporated church dogma that should have no bearing on law, you will stand here in defiance and say, well, those international documents don't have any, um, um, any legal standing. Yeah, that, I mean, and that's literally what gets said about these things. You know, and of course, the public opinion, the court of public opinion, um, is meaningless if nobody even knows that the, that, the, that the thing exists. I mean, if nobody knows this thing exists, then how do you suggest the wrong in, in what's being done? And, and, and look, while I don't, again, I don't endorse this, this declaration as a panacea, the fact of the matter is we don't cite it enough. And because it should be an embarrassment to the United States. It should be an embarrassment to industry. It should be an embarrassment to New York State when they do things that not only violate Native people, not only oppress Native people, not only do they commit these racist acts like uh, that I talked about with Governor Hochul and uh, you know, uh, basically holding the Seneca Nation hostage over gaming revenue. But you're also violating international norms. Yeah, United States, you're right. This declaration should have changed international law. And, and the problem with this declaration is that it has no teeth. It says all these things, and it says what these nation states must do, but then has no power to enforce it. And because we don't ever even cite it, it, it becomes even, weakened even more. And look, they, uh, you know, the, the UN has its, you know, their indigenous, uh, the weak uh, dealing with indigenous issues and that kind of stuff. Um, they give us an audience every once in a while. But I'll tell you, every time I've been there, I've been disappointed. I've been disappointed with, you know, the panels that they have, you know, how dismissive they are about the crimes that are still being committed against Native people, including this, this uh, horseshoe solar development. You know, Barack Obama, when he um, was in office, he had an executive order, and he did many of them, but one of his executive orders said that, if, that any policy or practice that was being promoted or, or started that would have impact on Native people by the executive branch or the executive agencies or departments required consultation with tribal leaders. Now, again, I don't like the word tribal leaders, but, but that was his executive order. So anything... That, that any part of the executive branch of the, of the United States government did that would have an impact, negative or otherwise, really, was required by his executive order to have consultation. Again, consultation is not consult, consent. Consultation, even as it relates to this, to this uh, executive order, is, is essentially checking a box. But the fact of the matter is that didn't even happen. I had a major issue with the Obama administration, and it involved, uh, and I've talked about it before, so I'll bring it up again. If you've heard me tell the story before, then I, I bring it up because it's relevant to this conversation. They wanted to pass um, a children's health insurance um, 
program. They're, they actually want to reauthorize uh, what they call CHIPRA, the, the Children's Health Insurance Program Reauthorization Act. But in order for the Democrats to push something like that through, they had to fund it. And, um, and the Republicans said, if you can't come up with the money, you know, by some means that isn't going to damage the economy and all of this stuff, then, then they wouldn't vote for it. So what they did was they hiked up the federal excise tax on tobacco, which obviously impacts us because it's one of, you know, one of the, the foundations of, of economy on Native territories. But so they jacked it up from, I think it was like $3.40 all the way up to $10, a significant increase. <clears throat> which, you know, from, from a Native's perspective, we can't even access um, cigarettes, Native-made or otherwise, um, without that ex federal excise tax being, being made. Otherwise, it would be, you know, even Native brands are, are usually compliant with the federal government, even if they don't necessarily um, um, submit to, to state laws. So that's just built into the price. So the price of cigarettes went up, which meant the, the, the price to the consumer went up. So it was just kind of a pass-through. However, <laughs> one of the things that happened was that they attached at the very end of that thing what they call the floor tax. And what the floor tax was designed to do, now I want to say this, there was, there was never any mention of us in this law. I'll say that up front, and I'll come back and address it a little bit more um, in a few moments. But So the floor tax was, was an attempt to prevent manufacturers and national wholesalers from clearing a bunch of product. See, as soon as a, a product is manufactured, it's considered in bond, uh, you know, a tobacco product. And it's not taken out of bond until the federal excise tax is paid. So it's paid before it can even begin uh, entering the commerce stream. Now, wholesalers could buy, uh, could, could bring in tobacco without the excise tax paid on it. But, it, but they, had to, they had to buy it in bond and then clear it through um, customs or, you know, or, or the, uh, the tax department by paying that federal excise tax. So what the floor tax was designed to do was to prevent major manufacturers and wholesalers from clearing a bunch of product in advance of the increase, which was you know, tied to a specific date, um, and then jack up the price in anticipation of the, of, of the increase and just have a windfall from, from all, that, all that product. So do a big rush to clear a bunch of product through, um, through customs through, you know, by taking out a bond, and then they would have product that essentially they could sell with, you know, as much as a $10 increase, you know, even though the increase was, you know, just a little less than $7, and just collecting windfall. So that's what the floor tax was for. Now, that, it was designed to, to prevent manufacturers and distributors who had the ability to purchase or have this, these tobacco products in their possession without the tax on it and ultimately uh, you know, clear it through, through customs or whatever. Now, what ended up happening was a year or two later, <laughs> native retailers and wholesalers, but native retailers in particular, started getting letters from the Interior Department saying, um, our floor tax provision of the, of, of the CHIPRA law um, requires that you pay us the amount of uh, the, the amount of that tax increase for product we believe you had sitting on your floor, whether it was on, on the shelves of your, your, your convenience stores or whether it was on the floor of, of, of your warehouses. 
I immediately went to uh, Senator Gillibrand's office and Congressman uh, Higgins' office, and first went there just to ask the question. I said, look, was this your intent, that this floor tax would be applied to us? I mean, our view is that we already took that product out of your commerce stream and put it into ours. And so now we're getting wholesalers and retailers, native wholesalers and retailers, getting these letters from the, uh, from the tax department, an executive branch, by the way. And we saw nothing in the language that said there was any intent, legal intent, um, legislative intent for this to apply to us. In fact, our own nation legal counsel basically told us, no, that, that, don't worry about that. That's not about us. And so now um, native businesses were getting letters saying they, they had to pay 50000 100000 200000 some some over a million dollars in this floor tax. And I got it confirmed, not just in the local office of uh, Senator Gillibrand and Congressman Higgins, but they checked with their, their main offices in Washington and said, no, there, there was never any legislative intent. This, and, they, and they reiterated what I already knew, what, what its intention was for. So I took that information, and, and, they, and, and I had it in correspondence, email correspondence. And I made sure that, um, that the, all the lawyers representing folks around here and, and the Treasury Department had copies of it. But I also managed to get a meeting with the senior policy advisor to Barack Obama on Native issues. Her name was Jody Gillette. And I, you know, through, through some friendships that I had at the time and through, you know, kind of through some back, backdoor machinations, I guess, I managed to get a meeting with Jody Gillette in Washington, you know, at the, you know, uh, at the, the White House or, or the administration building associated with it. And I told her flat out, I said, this decision by the Treasury Department to um, try to enforce the floor tax on Native people is a policy decision. It, is, it had no legislative intent. And I provided her with the emails. And we debated it some. And I said, you know, Barack Obama issued this executive order and said that policies that were going to impact Native people and clearly sending bills, tax bills to Native people for sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars impacts us. And so we, we had that, the discussion. And, and we talked, for, you know, and I went down with some other folks from here, from Seneca Territory, and quietly resolved the problem. You know, for all intents and purposes, no one ever received another letter. Now, some people had paid it. Some people paid that floor tax. But others didn't, and they never received another letter. But my point was, in, in bringing up the story, is that one, in spite of Barack Obama's executive order for consultation, none took place on this. And then we have to get into a debate. And the biggest you know, point of contention between myself and Jody Gillette was whether enforcing this floor tax on native retailers and wholesalers was a policy decision or a legislative decision. And, you know, I, I suspect, you know, after providing her with the information that I had, she, she probably, I would hope that she asked around. But for all intents and purposes, the work that, that I was involved in then probably saved Native um, businessmen, you know, millions of dollars in this unauthorized, you know, imposition of, of, of uh, the increase of the, the floor tax. So I mean, a couple of things, you know, to take away from that is one is that you can, make, you can affect change if you are, you know, doggedly determined to, to do so. But the system doesn't 
we don't have a seat at the table. So unless you can make enough noise, you know, and, and so when, when people try to criminalize our protests or, or criminalize our objections to what they're um, deeming as progress, and never understanding that we have a different view of what is progress and how detrimental progress can be. And since we don't have a seat at the table, none of that stuff ever gets considered. So, and the idea of trying to stop something once it's started, man, that's, that's a tough way to do business. That's a tough way to live a life. But that's, that's where we're at. We're, we're in a constant fight to put out a fire here and put out a fire there. That's what we do. And we don't know oftentimes where the next fight's gonna come. And when, when we find out they're gonna, you know, even the, there's even a historical marker at this, uh, this place in, in Avon, New York, or in the, in the town of Rush. And it acknowledges that it, was a, uh, that it was a Seneca territory. And look, there's bones and there's pottery and there's, there's artifacts. I mean, our people are buried there, not in, in rows like at Arlington Cemetery or your, your church cemetery. No, our people have been, there's almost no place that you can step in the United States that doesn't ultimately have the bones of our ancestors there. Now, we can debate what that really means and, and how significant that is, but we know how white people feel about the bones of their ancestors. We know how they feel about Arlington Cemetery or, you know, or, or any of these, these other cemeteries that, you know, that they maintain. But we aren't given the same respect or consideration. Part of what I've tried to do in shaming the, not only the, the, the people who were uh, proponents of this um, the solar farm, and it's ironic they call it a farm, um, and the developers, my, my, my goal is to say, look, you haven't even considered the fact that there, there are international standards in place today where our concerns are supposed to be addressed. And not just check a box. Don't just give us five minutes in front of a microphone at a public hearing. No, a seat at the table. Free, prior, and informed consent. That's the international standard that the United States can't... Look, and, I, and I've said it before, this document clearly says that the UN Declaration on the Rights of, of Indigenous Peoples is the minimum standard for survival and dignity and well-being. The minimum standard. So the United States can't meet or chooses not to meet the minimum standard. They don't, they don't consider free prior and informed consent. I mean, they'll throw some lip service around consultation or public, public meetings and public comment periods. But that's not free prior and informed consent. That's not a seat at the table. And that is the message that I'm trying to, trying to give here. Look, and I'm not saying that the United States shouldn't appoint Native people into positions. But the point that I've made, and I've, and I've done it repeatedly on the show, and I'm going to say it again. Deb Haaland, the, the Secretary of the Interior, does not work for Native people. We, we could argue that we're, some of us will argue we're, we're not even her constituency. Why? Because she's an American citizen. Many of us don't even claim that. We are a distinct people. Look, there are many Native people who are, who are U.S. citizens and, and you know, are Canadian citizens. There are people who, who 
are really patriotic about being Americans. I mean, by some estimates, they say 70% of our population doesn't live on native territories. They aren't a part of a native community anymore. They live in cities. They live in other areas. Why? Because of, of, the, of the abject poverty that has been imposed on native people in our, in our territories, for the most part. And even when we have some success, we get met by somebody like Kathy Hochul, who will freeze up all the bank accounts to, to extort money out of the Senecas. Or we'll, we'll end up in a, in a fight with New York State over, over you know, cigarette taxes or over some other type of development. These are the kind of fights that we go through. Federal government, floor tax, right? So we are in a constant state of reacting. We don't get to be proactive. One of the things that got said at this hearing was, well, the Senecas, um, after we did those little carve-outs, we never heard anything back from the Seneca Nation or the, the Talawanda Senecas. So they, they interpreted silence as approval. Well, you know what? We've got other things that we're fighting. And we already, we already said what we, that we were opposed. I mean, the Senecas, you know, both communities of Seneca people made it very clear that they were opposed to this thing. And you're doing a little bit of a carve-out, moving your fence line a little bit, didn't fix the problem. But, you know, we're fighting New York State on every turn. We're fighting the federal government on every turn. We've got tax issues at the state and federal level that we're always battling the, the, the state and federal government over. We have regulatory control issues that we're always battling the state and federal governments over. Our right to do commerce is under constant attack while complete unfettered access to both our existing lands and our ancestral lands are ignored, completely disrespected. There was never a, a broad-based invitation to even have this conversation because you know what? Many of us would have had some other suggestions on where they could have put this, um, and no, I'm not talking about anatomically, where they could have put this, uh, this, this solar farm. I mean, look, they, they already carved up the land with their, with their highways. They got the, the throughway that runs the entire stretch of New York. And most of that throughway has, has wide medians. Look, they could have put, they could have put their, their solar farms in between the, in, in between the uh, opposing lanes of, uh, of the throughway. And I'm looking, if that discouraged um, wildlife from crossing, that, that would be a good thing. Because the, the amount of death caused on the highway to any, you know, any number of animals because of, the, uh, because of the highways. Look, I've talked about the unfettered access that, that exists through many of our, we have the Mohawk Territory has the, has the St. Lawrence Seaway running through the territory. And that's not just a, a river they carved up uh, my, my, my community. Gunnawagi was carved up for the seaway. So we have international maritime traffic that cuts, cuts through our territory. We have interstate highways. We have secondary roads, U.S. routes, New York State routes. We have power lines. We have rail. All that stuff cuts through our territories. Everywhere, every one of our territories, whether we're talking about the Shinnecock in, uh, in the Puspatuck in, in Long Island or whether we're talking about the Mohawks of, of Aquasesne or the Senecas out here in uh, Cattaraugus and Allegheny. All of this carving up of our land is for your commerce, not for ours. And we don't even have a seat at the table when you're transferring toxic waste through our territory, when bomb trains are cutting through Seneca territory. 
or Mohawk territory or any place else. We are not given enough consideration to even have a conversation, not even having the, the consultation. It doesn't matter how many presidents have issued executive orders. They don't happen. And you know what? Having those tribal summits that cost millions of dollars that many Native territories don't have to send their leadership to Washington to, to take pictures in front of the Christmas tree in the White House, that is not consultation. That's photo op. And, and those photo ops, and even if there, when there is consultation, is not the same thing as us having a seat, a real seat, at a table of substantive conversation. Today, what the Senecas are still battling in terms of New York State is, the, is an ongoing battle simply because of the refusal of the Native woman, Native person, who sits at the head of the Interior Department. We clearly don't have a seat at that table. And the Native person in that seat, in that federal seat, at the federal table, has still not considered what the Senecas are going through. You know, some people say, well, she's, she has adopted a bit of a, what they're calling the Seneca fix by changing the regulations. Those weren't regulations that she's changing. She's, she has you know, suggested that you know, she will no longer require uh, two-party confirmation or requests for, uh, you know, for review of a compact. That was a policy decision. That's not a regulatory decision or, or, or limitation. The fact that she acknowledges that, that the current system was wrong, she had every bit of the power to change that stuff. She could meet with Seneca's today. She could have met with them last week. She could have met with the state and say, look, we have a problem here. But her silence has cost the Senecas over half a billion dollars. And I would argue the silence of the Interior Department since 2002 has cost the Senecas $2 billion in the 20 years that they've, they've operated. We don't have a seat at the table. We never did. And public comment periods executive orders for consultation, photo ops, political appointments, they are not a native seat at the table. And I'll tell you the other thing. Consent isn't just getting some tribal chief to sign a paper. There has to be a debate on what constitutes consent. Because in our systems, most of our systems, we never leave that much authority with an individual to sign away our consent. That's not consent. And in the United States, and this is something worth pointing out, for all of the, the claims that the United States says, uh, makes endorsing private sector development, free enterprise, the free market, capitalism, for all of their, you know, they're bolstering how valuable a free and open capitalistic system is. That's not what they endorse on native territories. And if the United States had their way, there would be no private sector development on native territories. It would only be the nations themselves in business. In fact, that's what they've tried to do. You know, there's no such thing as a native gaming company. 
Only the nations can, can be involved in gaming. The fact that we've had f these battles over, um, over taxation and uh, tobacco sales, manufacturing, there is a, there's still a pressure today to make everything on our territories nation-only enterprise. And look, there's, there are a few territories that are like that. Oneida, Onondaga. I mean, Oneida, <laughs> there, were, there, was, there was a time when a few people had some stores. Not anymore. In Onondaga, there used to be smoke shops, but the, the, the chiefs bulldozed them all with the support of, the, of the, the state government right behind them, including the state police, who they actually had attack a bunch of Native people uh, who were protesting some of that authority. So if the United States had its way, there would be nothing but very clear dictatorial, and, and when I say social, socialist um, uh, economic system on native territory, I don't mean it in a positive way here. I'm not mean, I don't mean, you know, socialism in, in terms of, um, you know, you know pr providing services for people. I mean that only the nations can be in business. That kind of socialism, you know, tied to economic development, is what the United States promotes and preaches and endorses on Native territories. They only want the nations in business. They don't want, and part, and here's the logic in that. Here's part of the reasoning for that. They don't want to have to deal with Native people. You know, from the very beginning, the first white man that ever encountered Native people said, take me to your leader. We, and, and when they got confronted with the idea that women actually had a say in, in, in our decision-making process, they did everything they could to promote patriarchy and, and did so successfully. They undermined the, the equality between men and women in our territory. No, we only want to meet with the men. We only want the, the people who, are, who, who have authority. And in fact, we fall victim to some of that manipulation. Today, we, we still refer to the Guyana or Goa, and, and, and I will say many people, call it the chief system. It was never a chief system. It was a clan system. And who was the head of the clan? The women, the women were. But, all the, but everybody participated. It wasn't even democracy. It was, it was fairer than that. Democracy is based on majority rule. We had consensus building system. That's what our, our whole process was about building consensus, not, not majority rules, not the loudest group, the angriest group, the most violent group. No, we didn't have 50 plus one ruling over 50 minus one percent of the population. That's not, that's not what our system was. That's what you have. And you don't even have that. But that, the manipulation of, of who we are, our identity, and how we operate is something that is ongoing. And, and we see it in, in every part of our economic development that, that our territories experience. And in everything, I mean, like I said, even in this, this, this horseshoe solar project, it didn't matter how many Native people opposed it. They only needed to hear from the leaders. Well, you know, in some, in some of our circumstances, 
we have a lot of things, a lot of things on our plate because you're lighting a lot of fires that we're trying to put out. And because there is no mechanism, there is nothing in place that incorporates any of the concepts of the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People in U.S. law. In fact, the courts will reject this. They'll embrace church dogma. They'll, they'll, they've, they've codified the, dec, the, the doctrine of Christian discovery, but they will not codify the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. The minimum standard for survival and dignity is not part of U.S. law. The minimum standard. But granting authority to the Christian nations of Europe to take our land, our resources, our lives, our freedom, that the U.S. court system has, has had no problem, even as recently as 2005 with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And frankly, I don't want to put it all just on the Supreme Court. Every ruling of ju every jurisdictional ruling, every dismissal of our concerns over environment, over our commerce, over our women, over our children, every dismissal is based on the codifying of the doctrine of Christian discovery. It's all based on the fact that they, with, with, with church approval, could claim to have successfully subjugated us. There's no, I mean, there is no place in U.S. law that says, we have submitted ourselves to this. There, there was no treaty. There's no, you know, uh, you know, no uh, lobbying effort to say, oh, look, we want to be annexed. We want to transfer our sovereignty to the United States. It's an imposition. It's always been an imposition. And it violates the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Look, I want to thank you guys for listening. Um, I know... It's almost impossible not to reiterate some things on a weekly basis because many of these things are connected. And part of my job is to connect the mascot issue to missing and murdered indigenous women, the gaming issue to our commerce issue, to our environmental issue. It's part of what I do. I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.